The FDF podcast is sponsored by Clark Energy, sustainably powering the food and drink sectors. Hello and welcome to the Food and Drink Federation podcast, passionate about food and drink. I'm Ellie Ashwell and I'm the media manager at the Food and Drink Federation. And I'm joined by our chief executive, Ian Wright, today. Um, So, Ian, I think today we're going to explore the key issues facing the food and drink manufacturing industry through the rest of 2021. That seems to be uh, a reasonably powerful agenda for the next half hour. Definitely. And I guess at the moment we can start with the biggest uh, issue facing industry, which is obviously around labour shortages. So I wonder if you could just give us a quick overview of what we're seeing from our perspective as manufacturers. Yes, I think it is the biggest single concern for many, many across the food supply chain, not just in manufacturing, but from farm to fork. And although we're hearing a lot about, for example, lorry drivers uh, and the shortage of lorry drivers, I think it's important really to see that as symptomatic of a bigger structural problem, which we've uncovered in the industry, largely as as the Brexit and COVID impacts uh, have begun to at least recede what we it's almost like the tide going out you see on the beach i mean warren buffett has a fantastic uh, line about when the tide goes out you see who've been swimming without their shorts um and it's a pretty graphic illustration and i think what this post-brexit post-covid period has uncovered is that our food and drink labor force which is over four million people has some really serious structural issues. And yes, some of these are a direct result of Brexit. Some of them are a direct result of the implications and impacts of COVID. But together, they are a serious challenge to the way we've organized the industry for the last decade. And I think it's really important that we don't simply reach for kind of instant solutions Now, it is important that we take fast and urgent action on some of these shortages, otherwise serious consequences will accrue. But it is also important that we try and understand what the real drivers of the the structural changes are and what we could do about them. So for me, there are a number of different factors here. One is clearly that we, we know that the Office of National Statistics said last year that 1.4 million uh, European workers had gone home during the period immediately after the pandemic began. But what we also know is that later in the year and in the early part of this year, the ONS also said that that number was probably an underestimate because it was based on a proportion of the five and a half million people who had registered for either settled status or leave to remain under the government's arrangements for European citizens who have been working here for a long period. We, what we, we think we know now is that that 1.4 million figure was a serious underestimate and that it's actually almost certainly much more like two and it could, have, could be as high as three million uh, people. And of course, it's extremely difficult to count people who are not here. Uh, so those people have gone home. We know also that a fairly substantial number of older workers have decided post-pandemic to become what the Bank of England rather inelegantly calls economically inactive, by which it means people have effectively stopped working, either because they don't need to work any further or because they don't want to work any further or because 
the new IR35 HMRC tax arrangements for people who previously were contractors and are now being treated much more as employees because they've only got one real primary source of income, uh, those arrangements have disincentivized a lot of workers from continuing to work. It's just not worth the effort. So that group is to be added to the, the people who've gone home. And then on top of that, you have this uh, really interesting effect of Amazon and Tesco and a number of other online organizations having recruited potentially, we know Amazon and Tesco recruited 200,000 people last year to cope with the increased demand for online retailing. But it looks as though that figure may be even bigger when you count in all the other online businesses. So we could have there about four, uh, 400,000 people who've transferred out of the traditional economy into the online economy. Now, of course, if you take all of this together, all these people didn't work in, in food manufacturing or food service or in uh, hospitality, but some of them did. And so the available pool of workers uh, for our four million uh, in the food chain has significantly dwindled and and it looks as though from some work that nfu ourselves grant thornton have been doing that we may have a shortfall of as many as half a million workers well that's going to have pretty serious consequences for our ability to do the things we've done in the past and and i would suggest that the biggest single consequence is probably going to be our ability to keep supply going to retailers, to uh, restaurants, to catering outlets, and indeed to manufacturing facilities in the just-in-time way that we have taken for granted over the last 10 years. Yes, definitely. And just for anyone that's not familiar with it, what is the just-in-time scheme? Well, just-in-time means that when you, uh, when you have a contract with a supplier, whether you're a retailer and filling your shelves or a restaurant firm that's uh, getting the kitchen ready for action every morning or every evening, or if you're a factory that's producing food, uh, anything from chocolate bars to ready meals, what it means is that the ingredients that go into your, uh, into your food manufacturing or the foodstuffs, the vegetables, the meat, the, the, the other uh, components of the restaurant menu, or the products that go onto the shelves arrive pretty much at the point when they're needed to go onto the shelf. So they're not stored in vast storerooms, as used to be the case in retail. You used to go into a, go into a big supermarket and you'd find a storeroom at the back of the store or above the store or in the basement, which would be almost as big as the store itself. Now that space is almost all turned over to being available to the shopper. And the, the shelves are filled pretty much out of the back of the lorry that arrives when those products are needed. And the same sort of principle applies across the food chain. And that has meant that, that the space is used more efficiently, the products are supplied fresher and more effectively, and they move from the big distribution centers where they're now held into onto the shelves or into the kitchen or onto the manufacturing line and then move out very quickly. And it's a much more cost effective and capital efficient way of deploying the resources that you, the, the, the products that you've paid for. So it's a better use of money. That's, 
that's the principle of just in time. But it does depend on the ability to uh, deliver it just in time. And you already kind of touched on the fact that, you know, the current situation is going to have consequences. Um, are there any others that you haven't mentioned already? Well, I think the other, the obvious consequence of that we're seeing with lorry drivers and we're also seeing um, to a lesser degree in other parts of the food supply chain. So that those, those shortages aren't just lorry drivers. We're seeing shortages of um, some skilled uh, specialists in manufacturing. We're seeing a lot of shortages in the meat industry. So in particularly in abattoirs, uh, we're seeing shortages, a lot of labor shortages in, um, in hospitality to the point where in major resorts, uh, particularly uh, in Cornwall, I know, restaurants uh, can't offer lunch or breakfast. They can only do one shift. So they're maximizing their income by doing just doing dinners. You see hotels who are only catering for staying guests rather than guests who come in off the street. You're seeing bars having to shut or, or reduce the space that's open because they just don't have the waiting staff. So we're seeing it across the industry. Um, and you're seeing some pretty uh, exotic solutions being reached for. So uh, we heard this week of uh, one area in abattoirs where they're seeking to recruit uh, people from a majesty's prisons to, uh, to, to work in those, uh, in those facilities. Now, I think, you know, I'm all for, I, I'm genuinely all for rehabilitation and we have some fantastic examples in the food industry of, of schemes that are being run with prisons to rehabilitate offenders and give them future careers and um, stop them reoffending. Um, and those are brilliant solutions and we should be supporting them in the same way, for example, that we should be, we should admire Timpsons for the amazing work that James Timpson and his team do in their stores with ex-offenders. But I, I do think it's important that we we treat these uh, people with the right amount, with the right and appropriate dignity that they deserve, and that we don't simply see them as as kind of cannon fodder for factories, because that isn't going to do them any good, and too truthfully, it's not going to do us any good. Um, and I think one of the problems is that everybody needs workers urgently, and so uh, the other thing that will inevitably happen is that wages will go up, because in the end, the way that you will attract more people into your factory or into your store or behind your bar is to pay them more. And so we're going to see, uh, we're already seeing actually a significant uplift in wages and that will feed through pretty quickly into higher prices on the shelf or in the restaurant or at the factory gate. And so you kind of briefly just covered on that. So what does this mean then for the long term of food price inflation? Well, I think that's quite a serious concern for us now. I know that um, the Bank of England isn't quite as bothered by this, although I understand that, that some in the, in the bank and certainly many commentators are beginning to get really quite worried about it. Some, some colleagues will have seen a a very interesting piece by the very distinguished former Bank of England economist Andrew Sentence, who was saying that we should this week that we should be really quite worried about food price inflation. I think he's right. I mean, I think it, it there are not it's not just wages which are pushing up prices. We also see commodity prices rising. The oil price was as high as seventy five dollars a barrel uh, just a couple of weeks ago. It came down pretty rapidly uh, over the last two weeks down to 
the mid-60s, but he's back up at 68, 70. Brent crude was 70 yesterday. Uh, and that's a really serious concern because oil is at, at the base, as you know, of, of both the uh, cost of transportation, sometimes the cost of heating and power, and frequently the cost of packaging. So we, we need to worry quite a lot about that. We see sugar and coffee prices up. The gas price is the highest it's been, I think, since 2005, and just about every food factory runs on gas. And then you've got a whole series of concerns in terms of uh, the cost of moving goods, particularly from Asia, as, uh, as the impact of container shortages and other international trading concerns begin to uh, bite in terms of extra costs. So I think we're looking at mid-single-digit food price inflation by the end of the year. And although there are other factors which mitigate that in terms of the overall cost of, uh, of goods across the, you know, the whole basket of, of normal products, and therefore it may well be that the UK inflation rate stays in low single digits, Food is a big, a big, big part of the of the inflationary calculation, and I would be quite worried about that for two reasons. One is inflation is not a good thing. It's often an, a simple help to some businesses, but it's not a good thing for the economy, and it's also a really bad thing and a really difficult concern for poorer members of our communities because it it it. it it discriminates against people on fixed incomes and low incomes, and it makes it much, much more difficult for them to buy the products that they need for their uh, to keep their families healthy and well. Definitely. And, you know, if we're looking into the situation within the autumn, what can we expect from the autumn? What does it mean for manufacturers if we carry on the way we are without perhaps government intervention? Well, I think, I think it's, I mean, I think we have to be clear that the government, there's not a lot of government can actually do in these circumstances to bring about instant change. Um, and, you know, those, some of those things it can do are things that until a few weeks ago we were asking it not to do. So, for example, until the middle of uh, the spring, we were saying that we thought the furlough scheme should be extended because it would insulate companies against the possibility of new waves of COVID. But now we want the furlough scheme ended as quickly as possible because it will free up about 200,000 people who are still on furlough. Um, and I think we have to be a bit careful that we're, that we're not constantly asking for things that government really can't do, which is why I think it's important. The one thing it can do is get to grips with what are the key factors that are driving these shortages. I've just outlined them, but I couldn't honestly tell you I know what weight we should attach to each of those individual elements. And if we could understand the, 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 the individual drivers of the shortages, we might get a better handle on how we can solve them. So clearly, there is a place for um, freeing up the availability of visas for workers, particularly in, in individual sectors. There's, a way, there's obviously an opportunity to increase the number, of, for example, of, of, of tests for lorry drivers uh, because there's been a significant shortage of, of driving tests for lorry drivers for the last 18 months. But by the same token, we want the lorry drivers we've got to be rock solid safe. So we don't want to, to do anything that reduces the standards of the drivers or the quality of the safety measures that, with which they're armed. So I think we've got to be extremely careful not to be 
crying for government to sort of save us in this situation without having a very clear view of the responsibilities of manufacturers and indeed everybody across the food chain. Um, and I, I think we are going, that's why I think some of these problems, they're not insoluble, but the solutions are not easy to put into effect. And I think we are going to see significant amounts of labour shortage in different parts of the food and drink supply chain over the next six to nine months. And the consequences of that, as I say, I think are going to be uh, higher prices and lower availability and restricted choices. Absolutely. And this is all before, you know, the ramp up before Christmas as well. So perhaps it's going to get a little bit worse before it gets better um, unless we come up with those solutions. Yeah, I think that's right. And I do. I think the one thing that I, I haven't mentioned, I simply don't know what's going to happen. I don't think anybody does. One of the things that, that traditionally are Christmas, uh, the Christmas rush in the food industry engage, involves is the deployment of a number of agency workers, particularly in the poultry industry, in, in, in preparing turkeys and so on. And I just wonder if those, the, those agency workers are going to be available in the right numbers. So that might be another effect that we see a bit nearer Christmas. Great. Well, thanks, Ian. I think perhaps we'll turn our attention to sort of broader news agenda for the second half of the podcast. Um, so obviously, we've seen quite a lot in the news around the current bidding war for Morrisons. Do you think the current bidding war for Morrisons has any deeper impact on the food supply? Uh, actually, I do. And I think that uh, I think that we, we are seeing, not only are we seeing a sort of systematic change in the labour market and the re re return of food price inflation, effectively for the first time in 25 years. I mean, we've had food price deflation for the last two decades, but now I think we're seeing, we're probably going to see a period of sustained uh, rising prices. I also think we're going to see a change in the, in the, in the dynamics of the ownership of our major supermarkets. So for the last, if you look at the period since, I don't know, the mid nineties, there's been a relatively stable position, particularly in, uh, from the turn of the century, that we've had four major supermarket uh, groups. We've had Asda, Morrisons, and then bigger than them, Sainsbury and Tesco. And then uh, alongside those, we've seen the arrival of the discounters, Aldi and Lidl, and we've seen some other players, Co-op, Waitrose, M&S, slightly smaller scale, but different points in the, in the value versus uh, quality uh, equation. I think we're now going to see uh, some real changes there, particularly in the ownership. So if you look at the, if you think of us as having had for the last two decades, almost all of our major uh, supermarkets British owned, with the exception of Walmart's ownership of Asda. Well, we've now seen the Isa Brothers buy Asda, uh, although Walmart retains, I think, a 30% stake or 20% stake. Um, and that will fundamentally change the way in which ASDA works because the, the, the brothers, I think, see the deployment of ASDA, particularly on their extensive um, network of, of uh, filling station, petrol filling station uh, forecourts as convenience stores. They see an opportunity there. Um, it's not entirely clear whether they see the current Asda estate as something that, with which they're going to stick or whether they're going to 
kind of edit out some of the uh, some of the poorer performing as does stores and if they do decide to divest those where they will go i think we're going to see morrison's uh, bought by one or other of the current american bidders um i think that the speculation that there will be a, a bid for sainsbury is probably right um the the argument for buying Morrison's is, although slightly differently put, just as strong for buying Sainsbury. Sainsbury, in many ways, is a more interesting proposition. It's got um, it's got a better online business than Morrison's. It's got a property portfolio which is more skewed in terms of value to the southeast, um, and it's it's clear from. Sainsbury's recent sale of its Ladbroke Grove site that many of its sites are extremely attractive as property uh, as property investments. It's got the Argos bill business, which has been very successful and is now being properly integrated into the Sainsbury chain. I, I can see Sainsbury being a very attractive proposition for a private equity business. And, and the important point, people say, well, what difference does the ownership make? The difference is that these businesses will be run differently. They'll be run much harder for cash. Uh, they will be they will take on a significant amount of debt, and that debt will be used to will be it will need to be paid down. And as a consequence, the businesses will have to be much leaner and much more uh, orientated towards profit and possibly more short term. And I think the other impact of this could well be that you'll see Tesco, which could quite easily end up being the only truly British owned business with um, with an accountability through its stock market listing to shareholders. You could very well see Sainz, uh, Tesco take the opportunity to kind of wrap itself in the Union Jack and position itself as the truly British retailer. Uh, and I think that all has quite serious implications for our members because supermarkets are already uh, dominant in the way in which they uh, now have a, an even bigger share than, the, than before the pandemic of the production of our members. So before the pandemic, about 70% of food production by manufacturers went to supermarkets and other retailers. Now that figure is up towards 80 or 85%. And don't forget, these are the areas, these supermarket retailers particularly, are the lowest margin business for most of our members. So the consequence of a bigger share for those players is that the, the uh, impact on our members' trading is even more marked. So this is going to be really important for the way in which our member companies have to uh, organise their businesses over the next a few years. So it's going to have a big impact. And just thinking about consumers, does this mean that there might be changes to what we see on the shelves or will it remain relatively the same? Well, I think the, the combined impact of, of the supply issues we were talking about earlier and these changes could well mean that the, that the way in which the shelves are configured and the way in which we see products and the products we see on the shelves might change. And then there's the th further potential for the impact of the new UK import uh, documentation that starts as a consequence of our leaving the EU. Uh, uh, there's, the documentation is introduced in October of this year, but will be 
the actual checks on on imports will start in January, and I think you could see some disruption as those changes come into play. I mean, we've seen massive disruption in our export of food down as much as 75% in the first few months of this year, stabilizing now between 25 and 40% down. And you could see, if not the same level of, of disruption, the same sort of disruption uh, in imports. So yes, I think these three things together will have, uh, will make a big difference to our shelves. And I think we all ought to, be, ought to get used to those little signs uh, on big gaps in shelves we're really sorry we can't bring you the products we normally do because there are supply issues which stop us from doing so and i think you'll they will become a regular feature of our daily lives yeah definitely um i'm making it more kind of towards the end of autumn i guess in november we have cop 26 in glasgow cropping up how will the FDF be involved? Well, we're going to have quite a presence there, and it looks as though we will be able to, we will have a couple of fairly major interventions, although we'll obviously be in the fringe, not in the main conference. Um, but COP26 is symbolic, I think, of, of the shift in emphasis of all uh, British business to a really serious appraisal of and plan for um, hitting our net zero target. And so the food industry, or at least the manufacturing industry, has lined up alongside uh, our friends in farming and in, uh, in retail with ambitious plans for uh, carbon emission reduction, and in particular for, uh, the, uh, for the achievement of net zero alongside retailers, certainly for, by 2040. Now, the truth is not many of us uh, who are currently engaged in the business of, of food manufacturing will necessarily be in it by 2040. And I'm always a bit dubious about people who make promises about a time when they pretty much know they won't have to deliver them and won't be around to be shouted at if they don't. But uh, I do think we have to be serious about this. Uh, anybody who observed the wildfires in Australia just before the pandemic or in Greece just a few days ago or anywhere between those two has seen you know with a, with a pretty scary vision of the future what we are doing to the planet and it's clearly utterly critical that we start taking serious and fundamental action to address that so cop 26 will be symbolic of that so too will the changes that we're going to see in the plastics tax in deposit recycling for soft drinks and coming up in the autumn and a massive piece of focus for us will be the decision on how extended producer responsibility will be implemented and by extended producer responsibility or EPR what we mean is that the cost of and organization of uh, the collection destruction or recycling of packaging materials will transfer very uh, squarely to those who own the brands which carry the packaging. So if you're a brand owner, a confectionery owner, or a retailer, you will become responsible through this scheme for paying for and organizing the, the recycling of your packaging materials. And that's a, a big, big change. And I assume with that change to regulation will also come additional costs to industry? Yeah, and that's a big concern for us. So at the moment, so initially it looked as though those costs would be about 
one and a half billion pounds a year. The government's now saying they could be as much as two and a half billion. Well, that's, that's really fundamental to the profitability of many businesses. And as I said earlier, the margins for many food manufacturers are already extremely tight. So we're going to have to do some very, very, very clear and, and detailed thinking about how we organize this process. And uh, a lot of work here at the FTF and with our colleagues in British Retail Consortium, in RAP, in Inkpen, the, uh, the packaging uh, task force, and in the packaging industry more generally, is going into how we do this. And this isn't just about food uh, packaging, it's also about the packaging that you get on cosmetics, on personal care items, and across uh, the homewares industry. So everything from washing up liquid to washing powder, all of these things are going to be uh, wrapped, are going to be enveloped, as it were, in the uh, in the work of this new system of um, extended responsibility on the part of the producer for packaging and its and its recycling. And finally, what's next for the national food strategy? Well, we we've seen Henry Dimbleby's report, and it's had I think it's fair to say a mixed reception. Um, there are many many good things in it, but there are also some things with which we fundamentally disagree. For example taxing salt and sugar um, and anyone who wants to see uh, how not to do a television debate on these issues should refer themselves to a program that I did on GB News the other day with a bloke called Asim Malhotra. Um, it's, it's not the most edifying spectacle but it does set out in quite sharp detail some of the challenges that we in the industry face in, com in confronting our critics even if some of our critics don't seem to necessarily have the same association and relationship with the truth as we would like them to have. But uh, I, think, I think the next stage of the national food strategy is going to be, there'll be a number of other contributions on top of the one that Henry, the, the one that Henry has made. And I should just say that I think Henry has done a really, really important job in raising a whole range of issues in his very, very, very comprehensive report. Just because we don't agree with it doesn't mean we don't think it's valuable. Um, we're now going to see uh, an industry contribution on the part of the Food and Drink Sector Council. That will come in September. There will also be an FDF contribution, and I've no doubt there'll be many others. And then the government will uh, take time to assess all of these, um, all of these contributions, all of these uh, reports, and there will be a, a white paper uh, which is essentially a consultative document, which will come, I would, it, they're saying at the moment, in uh, by the end of the year, I think it may come in December, it may come in January, but that will be the government's first indication of its thinking. And then I would expect that from that white paper, after a period of further consultation, there will be a, a bill that will enshrine the key elements of that strategy. And, and I think it's really important that we play a big part in this. Um, and my successor, Karen Betts, will have a big hand in what the FDF's saying about this stuff. But it is important because it will take us uh, across all the issues we've just been talking about. It will have to address the labor force. It will have to address food price inflation. It will have to address the environmental considerations, the dietary considerations, the land use considerations. All of these things will have to be in the national food strategy. 
It's our biggest manufacturing industry. It's a massive employer. It's a critical part of our economy, but it's also an important part of our national life. As I've said so often, food is a matter of national security. If you can't feed the country, you don't have a country. And, and we need to recognize that our love affair with food is manifest in everything from the Bake Off to MasterChef needs behind it a sensible, rational, and long-seeing, long long-term strategy from government. Government doesn't have to do everything, but it is in the position of key enabler. And so when it comes, the National Food Strategy is going to be a really important document and a really important moment for the FDF. And, uh, and we must play our part in trying to shape both the way in which that strategy is expressed by government and the way in which it is received by the whole industry. So to put it bluntly, and it's going to be quite a busy uh, autumn ahead for FDF. It, it certainly is. And, and, you know, anybody who thought that I might be leaning back on the sun lounger for the rest of the year uh, and taking it easy as I, as I, to mix my metaphors, disappear into the sunset, um, can think again, this is going to be at least as as challenging and as busy and probably much more multifaceted in terms of the challenges we face than have been the last three years, first of all dominated by Brexit and then by Brexit and COVID. So it, in some ways it's a kind of fitting conclusion to uh, my time at FDF that it will have so many different and disparate challenges. But it's going to be exciting and that means it's going to be fun. Brilliant. Thank you very much, FDS Chief Executive Ian Wright. And thank you very much for listening to the Food and Drink Federation podcast sponsored by Clark Energy.